What is the key difference marking the recent upsurge in violence in the Israel-Palestine region? What is the story behind Hamas and its mighty arsenal of deadly cruise missiles? What triggered the unprecedented uprise of Palestinians within Israel in solidarity with those in the occupied territories? What can citizens in Canada, the United States, and around the world do to ameliorate the ongoing suffering caused by one hardcore warmongering Israeli against the Palestinians? This week on the Global Research News Hour, with masses of humanity amid the most recent military exchange, we will be exploring some of the stories behind the slaughter with three observers and assess what answers there may be to their dismal present in the Middle East area. In our first half hour, we get an assessment from international law and relations scholar Richard Falk about the roots of the recent conflict and where it's headed. After that, Richard Silverstein, writer and blogger with the site Tikkun Alam, talks about the new dynamics in play and where it's likely headed. Finally, we get a view from Palestine solidarity activist and commentator Laith Marouf about the realities motivating changes for the Palestinian people and possibly for the greater world in a seemingly unending nightmare. On this week's program, the Third Intifada, Israel's Crimes, Palestine's Wrath, Ray of Hope, bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines. The Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 21st, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, unoccupied in Aki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of Nahiawak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. This wise, principled, and articulate Gaza physician, Dr. Haydar Abdul Shafi, offered Israel in his 1991 Madrid speech the peace it has always claimed it wanted, but to no avail, since it also included the justice Israel has never wanted. Before this movement, Palestinians had quite properly, but futilely, demanded that Israel return the land it stole, allow the refugees to return as specified by UN Resolution 194 under Article 13 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and pledged by Israel as a condition of its UN admission in 1949 and get out. But for the first time, a prominent Palestinian leader agreed to accept the invasive Jewish presence in Palestine, however illegitimate in origin, share the land and establish a true democracy with equal citizenship and civil rights for all. But Israel ignored this entirely, met in Oslo with Arafat, excluding Dr. Abdul Shafi, and engineered the Oslo Accords that included all the loopholes Boyle had advised the Palestinians to beware. The rest is history to date, as Israeli settlers under protection of IDF, martial law, and the 
ruse of conditionality pending final settlement negotiations have gobbled up more and more Palestinian land, dispossessed more and more Palestinian citizens, committed wholesale violations of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and entirely disregarded the Fourth Geneva Convention, which specifies the duties and limitations of an occupying power. That comes from the article, Reflections on Al-Nakba That Deserve Remembering, by Jack Dresser, posted May 19th. So right now we are going to give a COVID vaccine to someone inside a 7-Eleven. This is what community service looks like and getting the community vaccinated. A video narrator states, The Dallas County HHS featured its efforts in a short social media clip showing a couple of U.S. Army soldiers in full camouflage fatigues flanking a top Dallas health official. We're going out tonight to administering the COVID-19 to bargoers in Deep Ellum, the Twitter post said. By getting vaccinated, you will be able to enjoy going out again, knowing that you're safe and protected, except, of course, the people in the popular nightlife area this past weekend were already clearly quite comfortable going out again to have a good time. A local CBS DFW news clip said of the new Dallas HHS National Guard campaign that Dallas County is hoping to attract the younger crowd. That comes from the article, Watch, Uniformed Troops Go to Bars and 7-Eleven in Dallas to Randomly Vaccinate Younger Crowd. Posted May 19th, originally published at Zero Hedge. According to the Washington Post, on May 5th, five days before the bombardment of Israel began and two days before the protests in Mount Temple went out of control, U.S. Congress was notified of a $735 million sale of high-precision weapons to Israel. The approval of the sale by U.S. President Joe Biden became known on May 17th. Clearly, this serves as an impetus for Tel Aviv. On May 17th, alongside the aerial and ground bombardment, the battle switched to the naval area. The Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF, reportedly thwarted an underwater drone attack. That comes from the article, Video, the carrot but no stick in U.S. policy towards Israel. Posted May 19th, originally published by South Front. The FDA's Doran Fink responded, quote, I couldn't predict, but I will say that we typically ask for at least six months of follow-up in a substantial number of clinical trial participants to constitute a safety database that would support licensure, unquote. An approval based on six months of data would represent one of the fastest for a novel vaccine in FDA history. Among the six first-in-disease vaccines approved by the FDA since 2006, pre-licensure pivotal trials were a median of 23 months in duration, according to a recent analysis. Six months also seems substantially shorter 
than previously conceptualized expectations. A World Health Organization expert group on COVID-19 vaccines, which included FDA regulators, in August 2020 called for follow-up, quote, until at least month 12 or until an effective vaccine is deployed locally, unquote. That's from the article, In Rush for Regulatory Approval of COVID Vaccines, Do We Need More Data? by Dr. Peter Doshi, posted May 19th, originally published at Children's Health Defense. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. just heard was the voice of a 10-year-old girl, Nadine Abdel Taif, captured by Middle East Eye. She was brought to tears after an Israeli attack on a neighbor's house which killed two women and eight children. This is just one of hundreds and hundreds of people trying to communicate a message to the outside world in a stretch of cruelty delivered at their doorstep, literally in Gaza. Over the course of two weeks now, there has been exchanges between Hamas launching rockets and Israel launching airstrikes. By May 17th, the United Nations estimated the Israeli attacks demolished 94 buildings in Gaza, comprising 461 housing and development units. Palestinian strikes killed 12 in Israel, including one child. Israel, however, killed 253 Palestinians, including 64 children. The Israeli Prime Minister apparently doesn't have much recourse except to turn to violence and mayhem. It actually increases his chances of winning over those voters associated with extremists and forming a coalition with other parties, which he has failed to do on four previous occasions in just the last two years. The United States, under President Biden, just secured for Israel a sale of $735 million of high-precision weapons. He hasn't offered anything that can restrain Netanyahu other than insisting that both sides of the conflict de-escalate. 
the Palestinians are rising up as well and are intent on fighting on until the bitter end. We wanted to know a little bit more about the dynamics in play and how it was going to play out with the entire world watching. So we reached out first to Richard Falk. He's an international law and international relations scholar who taught at Princeton University for 40 years. In 2008, he was also appointed by the UN to serve a six-year term as the Special Rapporteur on Palestinian Human Rights. Now, the, the, the occupation of the Palestinian people uh, has, has been brutal for decades. But now with this resurgence, what do you see going on that, that's different from anything we've seen uh, in years or if, if ever? Well, I think it's a very complicated moment. Uh, I, uh, there's no question that Netanyahu provoked the Palestinians by a series of uh, initiatives that were rather inexcusable and have not been uh, contextualized in the global uh, reporting of the violence against Gaza particularly. But uh, it started really with the eviction of six families living in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of East Jerusalem. And these evictions um, rested on a very flimsy legal basis and were seen by the Palestinians as one more uh, example of the sort of ethnic cleansing that they've been subject to ever since uh, Israel was established in 1948 and they of course consider the uh, expulsion of uh, 750,000 Palestinians at the beginning of Israel's existence as the prime crime against their people and uh, it they call it the Nakba which is the word for crime. And just as these evictions were taking uh, place or taking hold, they were being challenged in Israeli courts, but they were expected to go forward. Uh, the annual day of observing the Nakba uh, took place. And coinciding with that were uh, right-wing settlers that uh, demonstrated in a very provocative manner. They uh, marched through Palestinian neighborhoods shouting death to the Arabs and uh, really engaging in incidental violence along the way. Uh, and if that was not enough, uh, the, the, these events occurred during Ramadan, the holy month for Muslims, and uh, Israeli police uh, disrupted the worship in Al-Aqsa compound and mosque, uh, which was a very distressing uh, experience for Palestinians. And they also blocked uh, worshipers from coming into uh, East Jerusalem from Ramallah. So all of this uh, set up a series of 
provocations, uh, and Hamas responded by sending some rockets, which uh, then led to this uh, cycle of violence, uh, Israel responding. And it should be noted that the rockets uh, are not uh, a legitimate uh, weapon because they can't, they, they, they're not, they don't discriminate, but they kill uh, one, one twenty-fifth the number of people that the Israeli retaliation kills. In other words, uh, among other things, Israel's retaliation and uh, constant uh, harassment and blockade of Gaza is disproportionate and involves collective punishment of the people of the uh, enclave, which are already under great pressure from an unlawful blockade that has been in existence since 2007. And it really amounts to crimes against humanity uh, that the international community has not responded to in any robust way. The U.S. has blocked the US, UN Security Council from passing even a ceasefire resolution. And Israel has uh, indicated that uh, it will persist as long as it has uh, targets in Gaza to strike. And all of this is against a background of Israeli tension uh, domestically, Netanyahu is uh, subject to corruption trial that he's been evading for some years. And they've had four elections, which ended in an impasse. And it was w well known that uh, security crises helped Netanyahu politically. And so there's widespread suspicion, even among Jews in Israel, that Netanyahu uh, uh, instigated these provocations for so that he would have the, a pretext uh, for escalating uh, the conflict and uh, engaging in a violent uh, interlude. Now, you think if, if that is the case, do you think that it's likely to succeed because he's trying to attract a lot of those uh, right-wing groups that are, are very like extreme right-wing and, and, and racist, uh, the, the extremist settlers and so forth. Is that a way of, of pulling more of them over so that he can, on the fifth time around, he'll actually succeed? Well, I'm sure he uh, thinks that uh, if there's a, vote, a fifth, fifth vote, that a lot of um, Israelis who didn't like him personally would uh, respond to the uh, security situation and vote for him. And that would include these uh, extreme right, they're, they're, it's hard to believe, but they're these political parties that are to the right of 
Netanyahu. And there's a, a lot of settler violence in the background, uh, which I think arises from uh, Netanyahu's failure to follow through on the pledge to annex parts of the West Bank. And so it's, as I say, it's a very complicated thing, but I am, I think it's going to work to the long-term advantage of the Palestinians. You see a media that is more receptive to uh, a balanced presentation of the issues and more sensitive to the one-sidedness of the uh, violence, the uh, casualty totals and other, the disparity in weaponry and so forth, and a little bit skeptical about the uh, Biden kind of denial uh, by saying uh, Israel has a right to defend itself, uh, as if these rockets came out of the blue, out of a political vacuum, rather than were responses to uh, very serious uh, violations of Palestinian basic rights, including their right to return to their own country. And that's one of the underlying issues all along here. Yeah. Talking about the media, I mean, there have been, well, for one thing, I mean, I, I'm not sure, maybe it's a little bit uh, less or there, there's more of an awareness, but at the same time, a media coverage, I mean, you still see some of these uh, lines of dialogue, like uh, they, they'll, they'll talk about a conflict rather than, you know, where, you know, even though there are disparities in terms of who the ca casualties are, it, by presenting it as a conflict, then that, that sort of tends to equal things out. In particular, I wanted to talk about the fact that media essentially are being attacked, or they, they attacked a big building that housing the Associated Press and, and other media organizations. Could you maybe give some comments about what the attacks on the media as a part of their overall strategy against the, the Palestinians? Uh, I think it's part of the effort to uh, close off the uh, objective reporting of the realities and to make the uh, Hamas and the Gazans feel uh, that they have no voice, that they are completely subjugated or already described. Uh, Gaza has long been described as the world's largest open air prison and with the blockade persisting so long, I think that Israel continues in this post-Trump period to think they can impose a solution and that they, they can uh, eventually take over uh, most of the occupied West Bank and uh, make uh, East Jerusalem more of a Jewish city or Jewish neighborhood of Jerusalem as a whole. They've already tried to annex uh, Jerusalem, uh, which is contrary to international law and the UN consensus and so forth. So, 
And one should put in the background that things have not been going well for Israel internationally. Uh, the International Criminal Court has recently uh, authorized an investigation of Israeli crimes in Palestinian territory since 2014. That's a big thing, even if nothing happens in the sense of uh, people being brought to trial. It, it validates the allegations of criminality that have been made and will and has had already, I think, an impact on civil society and on people. And then the uh, reports of the leading Israeli human rights organization, Bet Salem, and Human Rights Watch, the leading uh, liberal Western uh, human rights organization, that confirms the allegation of apartheid. That's a very serious allegation, and it puts Israel in the context of South Africa uh, and as a pariah state. Uh, with, with, if, it, if you accept the uh, allegations of apartheid, that uh, really criminalizes the whole structure by which the Palestinians are oppressed. Mm. And uh, I have this certain sense that this may be a Sharpeville moment in the history of the country of the struggle of the Palestinian people. By that I mean the, the, the massacre in 1960 in Transvaal in South Africa, in which police shot uh, and killed 69 uh, demonstrators, peaceful, I mean, uh, unarmed demonstrators. And that was, became understood as the turning point in the struggle for self-determination and racial equality. It took 30 years until Nelson Mandela was released and the uh, system in South Africa collapsed from within. But I think it's a this is a moment of inflection that, that uh, it looks like uh, very bad, and it is a very bad uh, time for the Palestinians because they're uh, dying and there and many children and women have been killed. But at the same time, I think this is, continues the uh, series of symbolic moral and legal victories that the Palestinians have enjoyed in recent months. And we know from the record of anti-colonial wars that the side that wins the legitimacy war usually controls the political outcome. It's not the side that has the better weapons and uh, dominates the battlefield. This was the lesson, the unlearned lesson of the Vietnam War for the United States. It absolutely had military control, yet it lost the war. And how do you explain that? And, and this is 
similar to the South African situation where a combination of resistance and solidarity, resistance from within and solidarity from without, uh, led to a situation of isolation of such a uh, sort that the white apartheid elite decided they'd be better off with a racial uh, racial equality than they would be trying to maintain uh, apartheid regime in the face of this kind of marginalization and opposition. Yeah. What, maybe searching for a flower in the ashes, but it seems to me to be something we should think about. That was international law and international relations scholar Richard Falk. Coming up, I will be speaking with Richard Silverstein, the author of a progressive blog focused on exposing the excesses of the Israeli security state. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Joining us now from Seattle is Richard Silverstein. Uh, he blogs at Tikkun Olam, where he covers the Israeli national security state. And he joins us now to, to talk a little bit more about uh, what he's seen and understands is going on in uh, Israel-Palestine during this current crisis. Uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Richard. Hamas actually used cruise missiles in retaliation. Um, is that a distinct difference this time? I mean, the, the, just the weight of the attacks back. Well, I, I think that what's happened uh, with Hamas's response is interesting because um, I, uh, an Israeli security source um, who um, uh, offers me information that is uh, either censored by the military censor or sometimes gagged uh, under judicial gag orders, told me that uh, the new innovation for Hamas is that uh, Iran has smuggled into Gaza um, either the plans for an advanced cruise missile or um, has smuggled the actual missiles themselves. I don't know which one of that is, but um, Hamas, uh, but, but Iranian proxy groups like Hezbollah and Hamas and others, the Houthis in Yemen, have been able to use Iranian weapons in their fights um, in their own uh, homelands. Um, and this indicates a, an escalation of the conflict because cruise missiles are quite in advance and the Iron Dome missile system that Israel has is really designed to shoot down these more primitive uh, rockets that Hamas has been using. And it's one of the reasons why 10 Israelis have been killed so far um, and that the uh, Hamas rockets ha have been able to get through Israeli defenses in a way they, they uh, didn't in 2014 uh, when uh, when fewer many fewer Israelis were killed by uh, missiles in 2014 there were Israelis killed but they were killed um, in, in uh, using other forms of uh, weapons than uh, than Hamas missiles so yeah this is a, a, a this is an innovation for Hamas and really an escalation because it brings Iran into the, this conflict and makes it more 
of a regional one. And in the past few days, rockets from Lebanon have uh, been fired towards Israel and rockets from Syria have been fired towards Israel. So um, I think this is a warning, uh, a shot across the bow for Israel uh, to make it realize that it could, uh, in unless it uh, faces some sort of limitations or restraint or ceasefire, um, it could have to fight a two or even a three front uh, war against um, either Hezbollah or Syria or Iran or Hamas or any combination of them. Mm. You, know, you said uh, in, in your uh, article that uh, uh, Iran uh, had supplied the, uh, the cruise missiles to, the, uh, to Hamas. I, I mean, is this, does this mean that Iran is a, a quiet player behind the scenes? Absolutely. Hamas has uh, supported uh, Islamic Jihad and, and Hamas in the past, uh, both financially and in terms of weaponry. Uh, because Iran uh, sees Israel as, uh, correctly sees Israel as an aggressive uh, sort of hegemonic force in, in the region. And also Israel is supporting uh, Saudi Arabia, which is an enemy of Iran right right now. Hopefully there, there are indications that that might be changing. That's a different subject we'll talk about some other time. But um, Iran really sees Israel as being a key force uh, allied against it. Israel has bombed uh, the nuclear facility at Natanz inside Iran. It has assassinated uh, major Iranian scientists, nuclear uh, engineers. Um, it's played a key role in the assassination of Hassan Soleimani, who's the major, who was the major military commander for all Iranian forces. So uh, Iran is very eager to um, take a pound of flesh from Israel because of Israel's aggressive acts. So um, it would be happy to get involved in, in uh, and escalate this conflict that's going on in Gaza. And that's what makes this conflict so dangerous. And also what makes it so uh, much more outrageous that outside players like the United States and the Biden administration and the United Nations and the European Union, these are entities which have played some role in the past uh, when there's been conflict and uh, they're basically sitting on their hands and refusing and telling uh, the world that Israel has a right uh, to self-defense against Hamas uh, missiles and ignoring the context and the incitement that you mentioned mm -hmm. that uh, really brought us to the, the, the incitement by Israel and by Netanyahu that brought us to the situation we're in right now. They, they're saying that Palestinians are rising up everywhere, including within the Israeli state. Could you, could you comment? That's right. Um, this is really a different scenario than we've ever seen before. In 2014, uh, we saw p public opinion polls in Israel that said that the uh, Israeli populace was 95% in favor of uh, that Operation Protective uh, Edge, or Protective Edge, I think it was called. Um, <clears throat> and now we're actually seeing thousands of Palestinians rising up inside Israel, uh, citizens of Israel, who never before would have um, been able or willing to show uh, opposition or discontent during wartime. They would in the past remain quiet, regardless of whatever their personal feelings might have been or their national feelings might have been. And now uh, because of this incitement, because of the border police trampling um, Al-Aqsa Mosque, the third holiest sh uh, shrine in Islam, um, and the, the holiest Muslim uh, site inside Israel itself, 
uh, Israeli Palestinians have really had enough. The, the boot, uh, the Israeli boot has been on their neck uh, since 1948, and they've been good soldiers, not soldiers, but uh, good citizens. They've been loyal citizens. And now they're rising up and saying they've had enough, especially a younger generation. Um, the older generation sort of has been used to living with uh, making compromises and accepting second class citizenship and discrimination. And uh, these younger uh, Palestinians are saying, no, we're not going to accept this. And there have been riots in the streets. Uh, in Lod, um, there were uh, Jewish businesses were trashed and a synagogue was set afire. This after the Al-Aqsa Mosque was defiled. So I don't want uh, any of your uh, listeners to think that uh, this was a spontaneous event that the Palestinians, without any kind of incitement, uh, engaged in this kind of behavior. They were deeply, uh, deeply insulted by what Israel did in uh, Al-Aqsa. And that's the reason that Hamas started firing missiles, because uh, Hamas itself wanted to show that it's going to defend uh, the rights of Palestinian Muslims when they're trampled upon in uh, East Jerusalem. And we have also the Sheikh Jarrah evictions that Israel is trying to Judaize East Jerusalem and remove as many uh, Palestinians from these neighborhoods they've lived in for generations in East Jerusalem. And they're trying to evict Palestinian families uh, in Sheikh Jarrah. So this is this combustible mix that has contributed to this horrible situation that we have right now. Uh, the International Criminal Court has been used uh, in the wake of the uh, the attacks after the uh, the Great March of Return, and they're saying that what happens thenceforth, you know, in in Gaza and and everywhere else, that that can war crimes there can be incorporated into the ICC. Uh, is this uh, you know a, a potential to uh, to take place, or or is it just well? They're going to ignore the results of the ICC anyway. I mean, what do you take on that? Well, all of what you said is true, but uh, that doesn't discount the fact that the ICC is a very important factor here. Uh, it has decided in the past few months that it will launch a formal investigation of Israeli war crimes, uh, alleged Israeli war crimes, uh, in terms of what they, they uh, the formulation they have to make. Uh, going back to 2014 in this uh, Operation Protective Edge that I mentioned, and they will investigate any potential war crimes from 2014 to the present. And that would include what is going on right now. And in fact, Fatou Ben Souda, who's the chief prosecutor for the ICC, uh, basically warned Israel the last few days and said, we are watching what's happening. We will, if it's uh, warranted, we will include any activities that uh, are, uh, are would be considered war crimes in our investigation. Now, it, uh, the caveat here is that the ICC is under great pressure not to uh, investigate or at least not to find uh, that it's the investigation warrants a formal criminal proceeding. Um, so uh, progressives around the world and people who support Palestinian rights really are very eager and it's very critical that um, the ICC go forward, not just with the investigation, but that it indict uh, uh, the culprits, which would be possibly Bibi Netanyahu and possibly the IDF chief of staff, um, Kohavi is his name and uh, indict them and either bring formal proceedings in The Hague against them or bring them to The Hague if that's possible. 
Um, so that is what I think many uh, progressives are hoping for. And that's an added element of uh, ratcheting up pressure on Israel. However, Israel expresses its total disdain uh, for the ICC. It it has no respect for international bodies because most of them uh, respect international rights and Israel doesn't and, and knows that it can't if it wants to pursue this apartheid regime and the, these war crimes in Gaza. So some of Israel's outrageous acts like uh, destroying the a press office in, uh, in Gaza and destroying the home of Yahya Sinwar, who's the head of uh, Hamas, which would be considered war crimes. Israel is basically um, 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 spitting in the face of the ICC and telling you, we don't, we don't give a crap about you or any international norms. We're going to proceed uh, uh, according to our own interests as we define them. And this kind of impunity uh, is outrageous. And I'm hoping that in the course of time that um, international norms will be imposed upon Israel and it will be made to pay a price for ignoring or, or insulting them. Okay. Well, it's well known that the United States has a certain amount of uh, clout in the situation, uh, but they always tend, I mean, even now, uh, Mr. Bi- uh, President Biden is saying, well, Israel has a right to defend themselves. And there are a lot of progressive sounding Democrats in his own caucus that are that are taking a, a much more strident stand. I mean, what what would you suggest would be the the answer in terms of remedying the situation for the, the, the Palestinians and the, the Israelis? Well, that's another important point you bring up because never before have there been voices in Congress opposing Israeli military uh, operations like this one. Uh, and we have 10 members uh, now of the Progressive uh, Caucus, the, the squad or the expanded squad, however you want to define it. And most of them have really raised their voices very strongly and some of them have even called for uh, suspending or ending U.S. military aid to Israel until there's a ceasefire. Um, and that's really a welcome difference from the past. The Israel lobby no longer has every member of Congress in lockstep. Um, the, even uh, 29, I believe, U.S. Democratic senators have called for a ceasefire. Um, I don't know what the other 31 Democratic senators are waiting for. Maybe they need to get their marching orders from APAC before they feel they can say anything. Uh, I'm saying that a little bit ironically, of course. Um, So Biden, his approach has been really terrible so far. Um, Today, just for the first time, he's called for a ceasefire. Why it took him so long and 200 uh, Palestinian dead and 60 or 70 children among them uh, before he realized that the ceasefire might be a good idea is, is beyond me. Um, but again, I think that the consensus in, in the United States is breaking down the pro-Israel consensus in Congress and that Biden is really a throwback to a former era uh, going back to 1972 when he was first elected. He was elected with the strong support of APAC. He's been at every APAC annual conference ever since just about. Um, he is really uh, in lockstep with, with Israel. And in fact, some of his statements actually could have been written by the Israeli embassy itself in Washington. Um, that's how, uh, that's how um, robotic almost his support for Israel is. But I think that um, there are people in Washington, even possibly in the Biden administration, who realize that's no longer going to work. Um, the longer this goes on without a ceasefire, 
the more that's going to break down. And so we've seen the fissures in the Israeli society we've talked about, and now there are fissures in US society. And I think that's really a welcome thing to happen. Um, unfortunately, it usually will involve many dead people and much bloodshed uh, before these things happen. And I wish it didn't have to happen that way. But unfortunately, that's sometimes the way history works. We've been speaking with uh, Richard Silverstein. He blogs for, at uh, Tikkun Olam. He joined us from Seattle. For a Palestinian perspective, we got hold of Leif Marouf. He's a Palestine activist and also a longtime multimedia consultant and producer and currently serves as senior consultant at the Community Media Advocacy Center and the coordinator of ICTV. What we often hear from the Israeli defenders of Israel uh, is that they, they have to protect themselves from the brutality of Hamas. How do you speak to those people and justify the actions by Hamas? Well, uh, first off, I want to clarify that I am not affiliated with Hamas. I'm not affiliated with any political party, uh, in fact. And, uh, uh, you know, me personally, I'm a secular, uh, progressive, uh, socialist person. Um, but having said that, if the devil comes down tomorrow, if the aliens or the predator come down tomorrow and say, I will arm you and to fight apartheid Israel to liberate Palestine, I will side by them. And so uh, this is a very important context to put here. The Palestinian people as an occupied people resisting colonialism, Apartheid, genocide, pogroms, uh, ethnic cleansing, and plain imperialism under the Geneva Convention, uh, written at the end of World War II as a result of the Holocaust and the multitudes of Nazi occupations, an occupied people have the right the absolute right to resist their occupation, their occupier, in any means they see fit, including armed resistance. So the uh, illogical idea that Palestinians that are resisting through armed struggle, uh, the apartheid state of Israel, the beachhead colony of the empire ruled from D.C. Uh, they are justified, their death is justified and their genocide is justified because they resist. That is the epitome of white supremacy, of colonialism, of imperialism. And we will resist apartheid Israel until it ceases to exist. Leif, for the first time in history, I mean, in terms of resistance, we're seeing hundreds of Palestinians rising up within Israel. I mean, it's some, some sort of a, a different path this time. What set them over the edge that persuaded them to really unify uh, with those uh, across the board, you know, on, on the other side of the uh, Israeli uh, path? Apartheid wall, yes. So look, the Palestinian second-class citizens of apartheid Israel, that 25% that of the Palestinians that remained after the 
Nakba, the genocide of the Palestinians, the expulsion of the majority of the Palestinians from the territory that became apartheid Israel. Those Palestinians uh, have been living a hell under this rule, uh, first through uh, direct military rule, even though they, they were citizens until 1965, and then throughout the, the period of, of, of resistance, uh, decolonization that happened in the, you know, uh, have, have lived horrible conditions. We know that they live in ghettos uh, where, you know, every time they stood up uh, and, and they did rise up with the rest of the Palestinians in every intifada. We remember in the second intifada in 2000, the Palestinian uh, citizens of apartheid Israel started demonstrating and, and a, you know, there was a huge massacre on, in Umm al-Fahim, one of the main ghettos in North Palestine, uh, where a, a police officer just walked into, an Israeli Zionist police officer walked into a bus carrying Palestinian citizens that were going to go to a demonstration and just riddled 13 people with bullets uh, and killed them at once. Today, there was a, uh, like a demonstration of close to 400,000 people out in the streets of, uh, of uh, Al-Lid and Umm Al-Fahim, uh, uh, and they were carrying the body of a Palestinian youth that was shot in the head by an Israeli police officer from one of these ghettos, uh, and you know, t you know, processioning his body to, to be buried. The truth is, uh, you know, the illogical, the insane, move that Netanyahu did by deciding to invade the Aqsa Mosque, uh, the third holiest shrine in, 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 in the Muslim world. And uh, it, uh, in Ramadan, in the last 10 days, that are the holiest 10 days of the calendar, of the Muslim calendar, uh, with the sole purpose of breaking the heads of Palestinians and then bringing in uh, uh, Zionist, uh, Jewish supremacist, colonists to march on top of their bodies so they can assert the authority of these colonists over the holy site of Al-Aqsa Mosque. I mean, if, you know, whoever did, you know, design this action was intending to have this reaction and or thought that they can do it and get away with it because they've been getting away with the same kind of Jewish supremacist behavior for 70 somewhat years under the protection of countries like Canada and the United States and the rest of the empire rolled from DC. I mean, I know that they've used white phosphorus in the past and maybe other weapons that illegal under international law. What do you know about the use of, of such weapons in the, in the current uh, milieu? Well, they have been using white phosphorus right now. There's been multiple uh, times that they use it in the last couple of days. Uh, the truth is, you know, the resistance in Gaza, the armed military resistance in Gaza with of Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the PLFP, and others have been mainly targeting military targets. And, and they have been pounding the, uh, the Israeli uh, military bases around the Gaza. They have uh, this, uh, targeted and hit most of the airports of uh, apartheid Israel. And in, in return, 
the uh, regime, the apartheid regime, has been targeting civilians. This is the epitome of cowardice of colonialism, because you cannot break the will of a people looking for their freedom, so you slaughter them, so they can, they can stop fighting you back. And so there is nobody who is more cowardly than the Israelis. The Palestinian resistance over the last uh, you know, day have been telling the Zionists, we're waiting for you, come in, come into Gaza. We want to face you face to face. But these cowards, backed by the bombs of the United States, backed by the drones that are built in Canada, backed by the weapons, by the submarine, nuclear submarines delivered by Nazi Germany, are uh, deciding to target children, target homes, target schools, target mosques, target orphanages and humanitarian organizations. And uh, as we saw, of course, the media towers that were blown up and, you know, Associated Press and every media agency that is in Gaza had their, their offices destroyed by apartheid Israel just to stop the uh, transmission of information uh, from the concentration camp of Gaza. Netanyahu has nothing to lose. Once he loses his prime ministership, he's, he's facing three corruption counts in trial. If he, none of the world leaders give any indication they'll launch sanctions uh, and at best they call on both sides to calm down, you know. So I, I'm wondering how do you see this unique scenario playing out this time? Will there be, will there be a de-escalation or will Israel just go flat out and invade and annihilate Gaza? Well, look, at, uh, I, I want to be very clear. You know, I'm a person who's, who doesn't like to portray my people as victims. And this time is certainly we are ready to resist. You know, for the last uh, year or so, all the resistance axis, including Hezbollah, Syria, Iran, Yemen, Iraq, have all openly said that they have delivered all the latest technologies to the resistance in Gaza in their effort to stop apartheid Israel from taking such an adventurous uh, you know, action as they did and, and, and lead to a, uh, a snowball of events. And uh, you know, the resistance movements in Gaza have said clearly, have set their ceasefire conditions. And the ceasefire condition is that apartheid Israel has to lift its hand off Jerusalem. And what does that mean? That means that the resistance will not stop fighting apartheid Israel until it withdraws completely and unconditionally from the West Bank and Jerusalem. So these are conditions that are very clear. And it's, you know, in the situation that we see where uh, apartheid Israel is, is full of hubris and supremacy. It cannot accept such conditions. So what I personally you know, see happening in the next few days is that uh, as the resistance continues to pound the hell out of Israeli uh, bases, you know, just now, a few hours ago, they, they fired a Cornette-guided missile on a armored uh, bus transporting Israeli soldiers the Israeli, and, and, and disseminated the video of it being blown to bits. The Israeli government is hiding how many 
soldiers were liquidated in this in this incident. Uh, I personally, what I expect is that Netanyahu, seeing that he is losing the war against the resistance in the Gaza concentration camp, this 22 kilometers by seven kilometer strip of land, he will be attempting to open fronts uh, with other uh, uh, the countries around, with Lebanon, with Syria, to be to extract himself from a losing situation, so he can bomb other countries and make it into a a, a regional battle. And uh, you know what? All the resistance axes here in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Iran are ready for that. And this is where. We're at, we're at a situation where it is either a complete genocide of the Palestinian people or a dismantlement of apartheid Israel. And there is no third option. Uh, just uh, about a minute left. Could you uh, give advice to Canadians uh, watch or uh, listening? How, what can they do to, to work towards bringing about peace in, in uh, Palestine, in Israel, Palestine? Well, look, the Canadian public has a responsibility. They have direct blood on their hands because their taxpayer money is funding the genocide of the Palestinian people through the weapons, through the, the free trade agreements and, and such. So what is the, the Canadian public to do? The Canadian public to do have to force their government to stop supporting this genocidal apartheid state. And that doesn't work even with just talking to your politician who will know exactly what is happening. And they support it full-heartedly because they are imperialists, these MPs and this Prime Minister Trudeau. What they need to do is they need to occupy the basis of the Canadian Armed Forces. They need to occupy the military hardware factories. They need to occupy their ports and stop the shipping of these weapons to apartheid Israel. Anything less than that will not actually uh, cleanse them from the blood on their hands as Canadians. We need to see the Canadian public take responsibility for the actions of their states. They cannot say that the state of Canada doesn't represent you and its actions, it does. And therefore, it is your responsibility, just like the responsibility of Palestinians is to liberate themselves, it is your responsibility as Canadians to stop your goddamn government from sending its weapons of death and supporting this apartheid state. Leif Marouf is a Palestine activist and also a longtime multimedia consultant and commentator. He joined us from Lebanon. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio stations CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Metis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.